0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello everyone, and welcome to the New Books Network. This is Hussein Masin, and today I'll be talking with Athena Actapis, author of The Cheating Cell, How Evolution Helps Us Understand and Treat Cancer. This is a book at the intersection of evolution, cancer, history, and cooperation theory. Dr. Actipus is a co leader of the Arizona Cancer Evolution Center and an associate professor and director of the Cooperation and Conflict Lab at Arizona State University. Athena, welcome to the podcast.
1: It's my pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: Before we delve into the book, I wonder if you'd begin the interview by saying a few words about yourself that's where you were born, where you went to school, and how you became interested. In cancer evolution.
1: Well, I was born in the suburbs of Chicago, and I um, both of my parents were um, from not the U.S. So, uh, my dad from Greece, and my mom from Austria. So, I'm a first generation, um, immigrant. And, um, that was, that was sort of interesting growing up like that. Um, but my dad, he was, a, an intellectual and academic. Um, he actually worked on DNA and RNA and my mom was an artist. And so, um, I had a, a interesting sort of, you know, dual, um, uh, dual childhood on both sort of the science and the art side. And, um, then I went to, uh, my undergrad institution, Reed college in Portland, Oregon, um, which, which was great. Lots of small classes. Um, it was almost like going to grad school as an undergrad, um, you have to actually do a thesis in order to graduate. Um, so that was, um, that was a, a really great experience. And then I did my graduate work at UPenn um, in psychology, but I was doing modeling of the evolution of cooperation really, um, you know, from the very beginning there. I, I even started doing that when I was still an undergrad. Um, so my interest has always kind of been – in the evolution of cooperation, evolution of behavior, and, um, you know, how those principles apply across all systems that evolve, you know, whether we're talking about, you know, humans interacting in small groups, or cells interacting in cellular societies, you know, these questions about how cooperation emerges, how it's maintained, and, you know, what threatens it have been pretty central to me um, for, for several decades now.
0: Interesting. So, in the first chapter of the book, uh, you introduce some of the ideas that we will be talking about. Uh, And I'd like to start from chapter two. Evolution is no doubt central to the book. And in this chapter, you talk about teleological thinking in relation to evolution. And you say that, you know, thinking about reasons through the lens of known consequences might sometimes lead to imprecise conclusions. But you also suggest. That this type of thinking is not entirely wrong and might sometimes even be helpful. Uh, what do you mean by that?
1: Yeah, well, so teleology it can definitely be a trap, right? If you think that, you know, the reason that something happens is um, because it generated the outcome that occurred. Um, that's, you know, kind of getting causation backwards. Um, but when it comes to sort of reasoning about why certain adaptations exist in evolutionary terms, it can be useful um, to adopt a sort of a certain version of this teleological thinking, right? So, you know, if you look at, um, say, Uh, fins on a a dolphin and, you know, you ask, well, why, why are they there? And you look at what they do while they, you know, help the dolphin move around. Um, That is teleological reasoning in a way, right? Because you're saying, oh, the reason that they're there is because of the effect that they have. Um, But the fact is evolution has shaped them, um, over, you know, so many hundreds of thousands of years to have those features that allow them to accomplish those goals. So um, evolution kind of functions with this almost as if intentionality, right? It sort of looks like things um, were designed for particular purposes, but in reality, there was just variation that was selected and those individuals that were best at, you know, doing certain things um, were the ones that ended up surviving and reproducing more so so yeah it's a it's sort of a heuristic a a cognitive shortcut that can be useful but as we're using it we have to be aware that it's um, you know not entirely accurate to say right that the reason a thing exists is because of what its effects are
0: Well, I'm wondering if you would differentiate in this regard between human evolution and evolution of other systems in a sense that uh, we tend to think that humans are different because they possess the ability uh, to be rational and to plan more than other species. So would you even differentiate between humans in this regard or this also applies to human species?
1: Uh, it applies just as much to humans as it does to other organisms. I mean, I think oftentimes we we think we're so special, but uh, in reality, there are a lot of other organisms, a lot of other systems that do complex computation and, um, you know, decision making, even if it doesn't look the same as what we're doing with our brains, um, there's a, a hell of a lot of information processing going on in cellular systems, going on in, you know, multi-species biofilms, um, you know, even plants have lots of, you know, complex information processing that's going on. So, um, I think, you know, we as humans are unique in that we can think about things like intentions and goals and, um, maybe, you know, impose those on how, you know, we're looking at certain kinds of systems. But um, I don't think that in general, we want to apply different ways of reasoning about evolution to humans as we do to other systems.
0: So in the third chapter, which is titled Cheating in Multicellular Cooperation, you use the metaphor of a handbook of cooperation that's been throughout very long stretches of time been developed between cells uh, and this is the basis on which cancer cells would be considered as quote-unquote cheating cells what are the main rules of this handbook and if you can give us an example or two of how cancer cells break them
1: absolutely yeah so one way of really thinking about what cancer is is that it's it's breaking these rules of sort of cooperative multicellular living that are laid out in this metaphorical handbook. And the, you know, the metaphor, the handbook is sort of meant to map on to the genes that, you know, all of our cells possess that essentially instruct the cell in how to behave. And that includes things like, um, suppressing division so not pro- cells not proliferating at their maximum rate but rather holding that back it includes uh, also re- restraining metabolism and resource use so that um, there is, there are enough resources for all the cells in the body uh, it includes um, having mechanisms that allow the cell to actually self-destruct if it's becoming dangerous and um, you also have a lot of genes that can get turned on or off depending on what kind of cell type um, that cell should be. So this basically corresponds to division of labor um, in a sort of broader cooperative sense. Um, and you have lots of cells that are, are doing different functions. Um, and that's happening, you know, through the genetic code as well. Um, and then uh, the creation and maintenance of the extracellular environment is also another important aspect of this handbook of cooperation. So it, it actually um, is something that, you know, we often forget is that our cells aren't just kind of, you know, side by side existing, um, you know, in our bodies, but there, there are a lot of things in between our cells and our tissues have a lot of, you know, other materials in them that help to give us structural integrity and help us to function normally. And um, creating that shared environment is another sort of important way that that cells cooperate. And all of these aspects of multicellular cooperation that I've mentioned um, break down in cancer. So, you know, the um, over-proliferation of cells, that's because of a breakdown of the mechanisms that otherwise control the cell cycle and keep cells from proliferating too much. Um, breaking of the, you know, rules around apoptosis, um, that is all about cells not um, self-destructing when they should. So every every one of these... Um, aspects of multicellular cooperation um, gets broken down in cancer. And it's really when, you know, you sort of get the pile up of all of these different cooperative systems breaking down that cells, um, that, you know, cancer cells or sort of proto-cancer cells really start getting an evolutionary leg up on the more cooperative competition.
0: Well, in in the same chapter, you talk about an interesting phenomenon, which would be uh, new to many folks who didn't study evolution in detail or didn't get the chance to, uh, which is the case of multi-level evolution. And in the case of cancer, it's as if it's an evolutionary paradox that takes place on two seemingly, seemingly contradicting levels. Um, how does this paradox unfold in the body?
1: Yeah, so it's a paradox that unfolds both in the body and sort of in the world on a um, organismal evolutionary timescale. So, so you essentially have these two countervailing forces. Um, you have on one hand organisms um, evolving to suppress cancer, evolving to have mechanisms that enforce the cellular cooperation, that detect cellular cheating, that respond um, to control cells that get out of hand or destroy them so that the organism can have a, you know, long and um, productive and reproductive life um, and then be more likely to pass along those genes that code for um, having, you know, less susceptibility to cancer, greater ability to keep cancer under control. But then uh, within organisms, you have an entirely different evolutionary process going on. So, each of the cells in our body has the potential to be sort of its own entity that can have fitness um, and uh, can outcompete other cells in the body. So, you have evolution going on on this microcosm of the body. Um, and unfortunately, that evolution that's happening within the body favors cells that break those cooperative rules of multicellularity. So, at the same time as, you know, evolution on the organismal timescale is selecting for cancer suppression, evolution on the somatic timescale within the organisms among the cells of the body is selecting for cells that have those cancer phenotypes. So that's kind of where the, the paradox lies, um, and that's why, you know, we don't really have a, a solution for cancer because, you know, yes, it's beneficial for organisms to be less susceptible to it, but at the level of, you know, among the cells, you're always going to have this evolutionary process operating that favors the cells that are, um, you know, breaking those rules.
0: Well, uh, the book, one thing I like about the book is that it breaks several misconceptions about cancer and it also tries to redefine the disease like you said but also redefine what we mean by curing cancer one of the general misconceptions about cancer that the book breaks is that it cancer is designated in the book as an ancient rather than a modern disease but one might wonder and that's uh, to build on the previous question why evolutionary processes have not eliminated cancer over the course of a long period of time, given it's that ancient. Like you talk in chapter four about a number of trade-offs that are likely the underlying reasons behind this quote-unquote preservation of cancer. What are these trade-offs?
1: Yeah, well, let me first say that You know, yes, cancer is an ancient disease for sure, but it is also a modern disease in that the way that it manifests now and the extent of it is uh, far larger than you know what it was for our ancestors. So um, I'm not going to say it's exclusively an ancient disease, um, but uh, to get to your other question and other point about the the sort of trade offs, um, yeah, once we start digging a little bit deeper, um, the question of you know why we still have susceptibility to cancer is a little bit more complicated than um, what my last uh, answer to your last question might have made it seem like. So if you look at a lot of the phenotypes that actually, um, you know, convey some susceptibility to cancer, um, there are a number of them that also sort of come along with um, trade-offs that affect reproduction or survivability. So um, I' give you I'll give you two examples. So um, one of them is um, wound healing, the ability to um, heal wounds rapidly. Um, that's a, a, a really important um, tissue capacity that can definitely, um, give a survival advantage, right? If you have tissues that can easily um, and quickly close up a wound, um, you're less likely to get an infection that could have, um, you know, negative consequences in terms of, um, you know, Im- a, a immediate death or extended infection and uh, and all of that. So, so that's a that's a good thing from an evolutionary perspective. But having that ability means that your cells can proliferate rapidly and move rapidly, right? Because in order to close a wound, um, those things have to be the case. And then what you end up with is, um, is cells and tissues where it, those phenotypes of, you know, in the right circumstances, at least being able to quickly reproduce or quickly divide, proliferate and quickly move um, can um, can be elicited by certain environments. Right. And so it, it creates a situation where um, those cells then are sort of closer to a, a cancer like phenotype and maybe more likely to get pushed into that um, if they're uh, given the right kinds of environmental stimuli from, from the tissues, So, so you have on one hand, something that's good wound healing. Um, and then the other hand, um, something that can convey um, greater risk of cancer, which is, you know, having cells that can proliferate and move rapidly. And and it's a similar story with um, certain aspects of uh, fertility and, um, uh, you know, also uh, some aspects of um, sexual competitiveness, um, where you know being able to potentially win out in the mating game um, might, in some cases, actually lead to a phenotype that is less um, resilient to cancer. So um, there are uh, you know a lots a lot of cans of worms to open up when it comes to the the trade offs that um, underlie our susceptibility to cancer and you know, this is an a sort of newish area where um, we're, you know, we're learning more every day about how, um, you know, different um, kinds of abilities of cells can provide advantages for health and longevity and reproduction, but also um, sometimes convey um, some measure of cancer risk as well.
0: Well, speaking of new areas of research, especially with what we're seeing now with a new wave of research regarding to um, aging, um, I was very interested in this trade-off between cancer and aging. So if you can tell us briefly about that.
1: Yeah, well, you know, the cancer and aging issue is quite complex. So Overall, you know, cancer in general is a disease of old age. It's a disease that, you know, you have greater susceptibility to as you get older because your cells have been around for longer. um, So they've had more opportunities to acquire mutations. There have been more cell divisions. So there's more opportunities, you know, for um, uh, mutations to creep in during that process as well. So, you know, the first pass is really that... um, you know, as um, as you age, um, cancer risk goes up. Um, there there is some evidence, though, from um, some mouse models and some other studies, that uh, if you interfere with some of the aspects of cancer suppression, like TP fifty three genes, um, that uh, sort of having them be too active can um, lead to uh, sort of premature aging if you if you turn them on constitutionally, so they 're sort of like always going, um, but if they are under sort of the the regular control that they should be in a functioning multicellular organism you don 't see that same effect so um, so yeah the the story behind aging at the moment is you know basically cancer seems to be largely a disease of aging um, but there it's possible that there's some effects um, you know if you have sort of too much cancer suppression um, that is not being regulated properly that it it may possibly contribute to um, to you know premature aging at least based on some of those results from mouse models
0: well another misconception that the book breaks and it was very interesting um, has to do with the incidence of the disease in basically all branches of multicellular life. And that includes numerous animals and plants. Uh, so apparently a cactus might get, let's call it a form of cancer. And that's very interesting in terms of how diseases are socially constructed, because I'm not sure if, there's, if this quote-unquote tumor on a cactus is considered a disease. But still, in Chapter 5, you talk about something that's called Peto's Paradox, where certain observations related to cancer could apply within a species, but not necessarily across species. So if you could tell us about this paradox and how you and your collaborators have been working to study it.
1: Yeah, so the the general observation with Peto's Paradox is... You know, if you were to sort of just start from the most basic principles, you might assume that the larger an organism is and the longer lived it is, it should have the greater the cancer rate it should have, right? Just all else being equal. Um, Mm -hmm. but that is, that's not what you see when you look across the tree of life, you see, um, a fairly stable relationship or, um, a slightly negative relationship where organisms that are, you know, more long lived and, um, larger have much lower cancer rates than you would expect. Um, and so, Peto's paradox is essentially that observation, and then the question becomes: you know, why is that the case? You know, why is it that um, some organisms have um, apparently, you know, m- more cancer, more um, more mechanisms for suppressing cancer than others? And um, our our team at the Arizona Cancer Evolution Center um, have been we've been looking at this question, and it appears that there's a lot of different. Um, genetic mechanisms that may underlie that, um, including things like the tumor suppressor gene TP fifty three. So you know, elephants have many more copies of that than humans do, um, and they're, you know, TP fifty three is just one really of of many cancer suppression genes that may be playing a role here in, um, you know, creating sort of better cancer suppression systems in these larger and longer lived animals and you know and the reason for that right is that these larger and longer lived animals if they don't manage to um to make it to that old age or that large size uh then you know they're they don't have the ability to sort of pass those genes along and so there's there's greater selection Um, among them um, for the ability to suppress cancer then there is on organisms that are smaller and shorter lived where they reproduce earlier. They don't need to sort of grow as much to be mature. Um, Then the costs of cancer, uh, the evolutionary costs of cancer are lower for those smaller organisms compared to the larger ones. So you get, you know, more effective cancer suppression mechanisms in the larger and longer-lived organisms.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's not all. You tell us in the book, and this is something I didn't know before: that there are some forms of transmissible cancers in certain species, particularly in dogs and Tasmanian devils. But how would that take place, and why is it in those species and not in humans? It almost never happens to humans.
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So you know. T- transmissible cancers are, are kind of this, you know, extremely frightening, um, but, you know, pretty rare um, occurrence. Um, and it they happen in Tasmanian devils, in dogs, um, in uh, a lot of species of bivalves, actually, there's um, transmissible cancer. And in a few rare cases, um, it's happened in humans. Um, but what The reason that it's quite rare in humans um, is because, you know, really it can only happen when, um, you know, individuals are... um, have lower genetic diversity. So that, that's what happened um, with the Tasmanian devils and, and also to a certain extent with um, with dogs as well, is that um, in order for these cells to grow in a new individual, that environment that they go to has to be similar enough to the environment that they came from. And so in the case of Tasmanian devils, their populations lack diversity actually because um, humans eliminated a lot of them um, uh, many decades ago, and so their their population is less diverse. So that makes them more susceptible to this transmissible cancer because it's almost like a um, like a metastasis um, that uh, you know is in a new individual, but otherwise has a lot of similar features. Um, So among humans, um, it's quite rare. Um, You do sometimes see it when people are taking immune suppressing drugs. Um, It's also occurred in um, pregnancy a handful of times or with surgical accidents. Um, But it's exceedingly rare. And, um, you know, if you have a functioning immune system uh, and you're, uh, you know, as humans, we're, we're fairly genetically diverse compared to some of these other organisms that have challenges with transmissible cancer, um, you know, those things are are protective. But, you know, this whole question of, you know, well, how, how... Rare or how common have transmissible cancers been in the evolution of life is a is a totally open question. Um, we don't we don't really know how many you know examples there were in the tree of life of transmissible cancers that you know emerged and you know maybe destroyed populations or populations you know evolved mechanisms to be able to actually um, you know suppress the. Spread or growth of transmissible cancers, so so that's a whole other area that is um, pretty wide open um, in terms of you know making um, new contributions to our our understanding, like of the the role of transmissible cancer in the history of life on Earth.
0: Well, throughout the book, I mean there are numerous examples of the tricks that cancer cells deploy to. Survive and even uh, divide. Um, And one in particular that was very interesting is how those cancer cells might evade immune response by basically mastering camouflage, where they would alter their expression profiles. So I was wondering about two things. One, how does it exactly happen? And two, whether it's a temporary thing where those cancer cells would change their expression, uh, like their gene expression levels. Once they encounter immune response, but once immune cells are not around, they get back to their quote-unquote normal cancer state.
1: So a lot of the changes in gene expression that cancer cells undergo are, um, are more sort of constitutional, you know, that they, they just shift to a, um, an expression profile that, um, you know, is, is different in, in critical ways, but um, can also, um, you know, make the cancer cells look like they're normal and so, that, so they don't get noticed by immune cells. Um, but, you know, there are other aspects of you know, cellular, um, uh, you know, expression state changes that are conditional on the environment. Um, you know, when it comes to the sort of, you know, camouflage question, I don't know the literature well enough to, you know, to to respond to that specific question. Um, but it is certainly the case that, you know, all the cells in our body, cancer cells included, um, do have the ability to, you know, change their expression state depending on the environment that they're in, the kinds of cells. Cells that they're encountering. So, um, so it's possible.
0: Interesting. So the last part of the book, basically, it's full of surprises, um, especially for, the, for those of us who are more exposed to the, I'd call it the traditional literature about cancer and treatment and whatnot. Um, as a segue to the last chapter, which talks about cancer treatment, um if you could tell us about that section where it seems that even some clonal expansions might actually be protecting us from cancer rather than helping us de- like develop the disease.
1: Yeah, this is I-, I think a really fascinating um set of findings that uh, are are really provocative and I mean they almost they almost challenge the um the idea that uh you know if you see a growth in the body, it's bad. Um, so, so the, the idea here is that, um, there, there may be certain kinds of, um, clonal expansion. So, you know, cells that divide and divide and create, a you know, a growth, um, that are better than others, um, in the sense that, you know, some might be more likely to cause cancer than others. And once you you, you sort of accept that that possibility, right, that there's some will be worse um, and some will be better, then, you know, it it opens up this possibility that there's actually some organism-level adaptation um, to in certain conditions allow clonal expansions of cells that are less dangerous than the alternative. So it's almost like... Um, you know, uh, uh, if you have, say, um, a garden and, you know, you don't want there to be weeds all over it, well, then, you know, you encourage um, the growth of some grasses that you um, would like to have there that will keep the weeds from growing. Um, so, so, so there's some data that suggests that clonal expansions, um, including um, of uh, the some mutations in notch, um, might actually be, um, providing this sort of protective role where they're taking up this space, um, and making it less likely that a, um, a, you know, a a cancerous growth will occur. So it it really kind of turns things upside down in terms of, you know, thinking about, um, you know, somatic evolution that it, you know, it's not just the sort of random process, but um, we might actually have evolved mechanisms for sort of shaping the trajectory of cellular evolution in our body in ways that can make it less likely that, um, you know, those cells that uh, um, that proliferate will do damage to us.
0: Before I uh, ask you about adaptive therapy and what are the details of this approach, I'll actually keep on asking about what was very surprising in the book and even quote-unquote interesting. In the last chapter, you tell us that there are many approaches that we can uh, deploy to treat cancer, and they could be new. But two of particular interest were one where injecting fake drugs could help, and the mm-hmm. second is, and this is uh, something I had to read twice so that I make sure I'm reading right, where even baking soda was used in some experiments to alter the tumor environment. So how do these uh, to uh, how did these two experiments work?
1: Yeah, so these those are some of my favorite um, examples, and you know credit goes to um, Robert Gatenby at Moffitt Cancer Center, really, you know, for this. He's the um, the, the doctor who uh, came up with the idea of adaptive therapy did the initial um, uh, modeling and um, has you know helped lead sort of all of the work that's happened on that. But he's had a number of really innovative ideas about cancer therapy, including those ones that you just mentioned. Um, so the the fake drugs, the Erzatz drugs um, idea is is really clever. So um, if you start with this notion that um, for cells being resistant to drugs, um, that there's some cost to that, right? So if you think about like what has to happen mechanistically on the cellular level for um, a cell to be drug resistant, um, very often they do that through having a molecular pumps. So they're actually taking, you know, the molecules of the drug from the inside of the cell and moving them to the outside of the cell. And um, that's something that requires energy. And the more energy that the cell has to use for that, the less energy they have for um dividing, for, you know, um making new copies of their DNA for moving around. Um, there's a trade-off there. So um Bob Gatenby's um notion, his idea then is well, you know, if you simply um create a, a drug that the cells um, pump out. Um, even though they're they're not um, really damaging to the cancer cells or the normal cells, right? Because part of the problem with a lot of um, cancer therapies is that they just um, have a negative effect on the host in general, um, or the patient in general. Um, so. By giving these pseudo drugs um, that, you know, these drugs that the cells pump out, um, you're imposing a cost on the cells that have this capacity to be drug resistant and um, not on the cells that stay sensitive to the drug. So it's, it's sort of a clever way to manipulate the relative fitness of the drug sensitive versus the drug resistant um, cancer cells that are there.
0: The interesting part for me was that in those experiments, it seemed that fake drugs are better than no drug at all. And this was the fascinating idea.
1: Yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, it all comes down to the relative fitness of the sensitive cells versus the resistant cells. And if you can make the resistant cells, ha- you know, pay a cost while the sensitive cells don't, um, then you make it harder for uh, resistance to drugs to evolve. And and really, ultimately, you know, resistance to, to the drugs is um, the the critical issue that that you know, kills patients in most cases um, because they're, you know, you're not able to actually get rid of those drugs or get rid of those um, cells that can be resistant to the drugs.
0: You describe other treatment strategies that could be uh, potentially helpful, such as slowing mutation rates in a tumor or decreasing its genetic diversity. And towards the end, we see that the book goes in full circle. So in the last chapter, for example, you underscore the importance of changing the lens that we see through which we see cancer. Um, And you suggest again that it could be more helpful to try to live with cancer rather than try to control certain cancer types, particularly metastatic ones. Um, And it's better than trying even to eradicate them. So you describe a relatively new strategy for treatment, which is adaptive therapy. Uh, If you can tell us about that and Interestingly enough, where was it inspired from?
1: Yeah, so uh, adaptive therapy, um, it's, you know, again, one of um, Bob's Bob Gatenby's ideas, which, you know, now has um, gone through a lot of research, both in animal models and clinical trials. Um, but the, the main idea of it, um, again, is uh, to uh, change the relative fitness of sensitive cells versus resistant cells. And the, the idea for it really came from um, pest management and agriculture. So the idea is that if you, if you spray a field with really nasty pesticides. Um, the only pests that are going to survive are the ones that are oblivious to your nasty pesticides. Um, and so while you might, in the short term, um, see all of the pests go away, in the long term, um, you're selecting for pests that. Um, are able to survive even with, you know, high doses of your nasty pesticides. And that's essentially what traditional um, chemotherapy does is, you know, really, really high doses of really nasty chemicals, which um, creates an evolutionary situation where the fitness of the cells that are sensitive to the drugs, right, the cells that will die if you give them the drugs, um, and the cells that, um, you know, relative to the cells that are resistant, you have sort of the maximum fitness difference there. So the cells that are resistant survive the cells that are sensitive don't. And, um, and then you end up only with, um, cells around that are, um, that are resistant to the drug. And the, the idea of adaptive therapy is to, Actually, maintain a population of cells that are sensitive to the drug. So, you know, this is sort of counterintuitive because, you know, initially you might think, oh, you you just want to get rid of all of the cancer cells, right? That's the goal. But some cancer cells are worse than others, and some cancer cells are easier to control than others. And so, if you can um, keep the cells around, that you can easily kick back with um, a dose of you know, chemotherapy, um, then you have a tumor that is more controllable in the medium term and long term. Um, and that, in some cases, you know, can be really preferable to seeing a short-term response but losing that long-term ability to control the tumor. So, um, so yeah, when one of the, you know, one of the ideas I talked about earlier of sort of, you know, there being this um, fitness disadvantage to resistance, right? It's costly to be drug resistant. Um, that's, um, that's kind of at the heart of why the strategy can work because, um, if you, if you remove a drug, um, then the cells that are, um, that are sensitive to the drug, have they can do better than the cells that are resistant because they're, it's a little bit less costly for them to operate. Um, so, so, yeah, it's a, it's a, you know, idea that feels very counterintuitive at first, because I think, you know, for many people, the intuition is, oh, you know, whatever you can do to get as rid of as many cancer cells as quickly as possible, as thoroughly as possible, is the right strategy. But in evolutionary terms, you can actually be selecting for a population that is harder to ultimately keep under control. So um, it's a it's a complex um, and counterintuitive strategy, but it's something that um, has been quite successful both in animal models and now in the clinical trials that have been going on. Um, you know, in individuals ahead had, um, you know, stage four metastatic prostate cancer um, surviving much, much longer than... Um, uh, the control, um, the match cohort. So that's really, um, really promising, um, in terms of, you know, the, um, the, the future of adaptive therapy, because it, it does seem to extend life, even for people who have, um, you know, quite advanced cancer already.
0: Speaking of um, new strategies and promising technologies, uh, I know that throughout the book, and especially in Chapter 6, you mentioned the limitations of available technologies, especially in terms of detecting the dynamics of metastasis. Um, With this rapid ongoing advancement we've seen in cancer research, particularly during the last two decades uh, at the molecular level, where do you see technology going in the next 5 to 10 years and what like when we would see some of the open questions possibly solved or at least addressed
1: yeah well at the moment one of the big barriers is that it's it's really hard to see what cancer cells are doing sort of in the normal tissue environment and you know earlier on you were alluding to a lot of things that, you know, have to do with sort of like tumor cells interacting with the local environments that they're in. And we know that that is an extremely important um, piece of the puzzle, one that's been really hard to study. Um, But, you know, there are more and more organoid models. So, you know, these sort of like, you know, rather than looking at cells in a Petri dish, um, cells, um, you know, people can create these almost sort of like mini organ-like tissues in the lab and, um, you know, look at cancer and cancer-like phenomena inside of them, which I think, you know, that's, that's definitely going to be helpful for, um, for for trying to understand how cancer cells are acting in context, and also how cancer cells might be exploiting, you know, many aspects of multicellular cooperation, because that's another thing that's very hard um, to look at with our our current um, our current methods. So um, so I think that that's one of the sort of promising technologies that will help us answer um, answer some questions. Um, you know, imaging also. Um, you know, right now. <laughs> The it's it's really hard to detect um, cancer unless it's already um, you know the the mass is already quite large, um, from a numbers perspective, you know, I think it's like, um, it, pretty hard to detect a, a growth that's um, less than a million cells, um, which is, you know, already a gigantic population, when it comes to, you know, the evolutionary processes. So, um, so, you know, imaging can can be really useful. Um, but, you know, then there's also, um, you know, other potential, readouts that um, we may be able to develop, you know, things like, um, uh, you know, looking at markers in the blood that might um, indicate that there's, you know, tumor burden or not. Um, There's more and more work now on sort of the relationship between the microbiome and cancer risk. So we may be able to, you know, monitor the microbiome or changes in the microbiome for hints, um, that, you know, might suggest that, uh, some individuals should be monitored more closely, um, to, um, uh, detect early, you know, to do early detection of cancer. So I think that, you know, essentially, you know, there, there are many, um, Many ways that developing technologies can be used um, to help us better detect cancer um, and and understand the more complex kinds of interactions that are happening, both you know within a tumor and between the tumor and that um, microenvironment that the tumor is sitting within. And um, those things are going to be really helpful for you know all of us as we sort of move forward with with trying to. Um, to understand the dynamics that are happening, you know, on the sort of ecological framework um, in terms of the interactions with the microenvironment, but also the, the evolutionary dynamics as well. So, um, so I think that, you know, I'm, I'm optimistic that these um, methods will um, allow us to, to get at some of those questions and, um, and, and understand a little better what's going on. Um, I'll, I'll mention just one more thing, which is, I think, you know, there's, there's been a, a pretty big gap in terms of how people are, um, are thinking about what's going on in metastasis and, um, that, having methods that allow us to really look at that over time um, and see, you know, how many generations of metastasis occur before you get a successful, um, you know, successful in quotes um, metastasis. You know, is there a process where you have lots of micrometastases, um, at least for some cancers? Um, uh, you know, those questions I think are essential um, if we're going to understand the evolutionary dynamics that occur in late stage cancer. Um, right now, it is is um, quite a black box. Um, but I think it's the most important box for us to try to understand if we want to reduce the, the burden of cancer and um, deaths from cancer, because it's really metastatic cancer that, that is the problem.
0: Well, thanks for the very interesting segue to the last question. Um, I'd like to ask you, before I ask you about your future work, Um, I'd like to ask you about a very contemporary event related to the uh, topic of the book. So just last week, BioNTech announced promising results on their new mRNA injections to suppress colon cancer and melanoma tumors in mice. And the injections included a variety of mRNA sequences that would code for what they called cancer-fighting molecules. Uh, or what was reported in the news. So how do you see the future of those mRNA injections? And in, in particular, how do you think it might relate to the cure strategy you suggest in the book? Just off the top of your mind.
1: Absolutely, yeah. So I think, you know, I, I definitely advocate for us considering the control strategy, right? We, we were sort of talking about that earlier. But sometimes, you know, it is possible <clears throat> to um, fully cure cancer, right? And to have individuals live out a long um, and um, productive life and die of something else eventually. So that, you know, it is it is possible. And um, I think that technologies like that, um, you know, are at least in, in theory quite promising. Um, but we do have to keep in mind that, you know, Resistance evolves. Um, you know, no matter what the strategy, no matter what the drug, no matter what the approach um, that you know has been taken in cancer treatment, um, cells evolve to get around um, those strategies that we devise. And so, I I strongly believe that anytime we're putting together new technologies for treatment, um, we need to think about how to evolution proof them, how to make it so that um, the evolutionary process, you know, the somatic evolutionary process among cells in our body is not going to um, get around that. And so I think, you know, that that's something that, we, you know, we don't want to sort of just blindly feel, you know, think, oh, this is a new technology, it's going to work, and there's not going to be a problem with resistance, because um, there there's almost, you know, there's no, I I know of no treatment approach where um, resistance is not a problem. So, um, so that's something that we have to, we have to keep in mind and really, you know, build in, I think, as we are coming up with new approaches to treatment is how to, um, you know, how to make it so that that evolutionary process doesn't result in, um, you know, resistant cells, ultimately, Taking over and um, dominating the the population, and then making that treatment ultimately ineffective.
0: Interesting. Uh, we've already held you up for a significant amount of time. I'd like to wrap up this episode with asking you about your current and future projects. What are you working on?
1: Well, um, I have I have quite a few uh, irons in the fire, I guess you could say. Um, One of my um, projects is uh, to, you know, really look in greater depth at these kinds of dynamics that underlie metastasis, um, especially cooperative dynamics among cells. I think this is one of the most important um, and, uh, you know, again, kind of counterintuitive issues, which is that cancer cells, yes, they might be fundamentally about um, cellular cheating, but um, they also can evolve to cooperate with one another um, in order to better exploit the body. Um, they can exploit the cooperation of normal cells as well. So cooperation is a tool that cancer cells can use um, to their benefit as well. So I think there are um, there are many, many important questions um, there to be sorted out. Um, and then in terms of my other projects, uh, I've been working a lot on sort of understanding how uh, cooperation and interdependence and other social behaviors have been, um, affected by the COVID pandemic. So in my, my work more broadly on cooperation, um, you know, I'm looking at, uh, it from a sort of social and societal perspective and, um, you know, how the sort of the shock of COVID and the changes that have had to occur because of that, um, have been, have been affecting us. And, um, Along some of those lines, also, uh, I, I'm really passionate about um, science communication and developing platforms for for talking about um, issues that are going on in in health and society. So uh, I have a. Um, a live stream channel um, and a podcast and um, some other projects um, as part of Zombified Media, which is a a educational media company that I run with some of my colleagues. Um, We're, we're trying to kind of create a fun and engaging space to, to talk about, um, issues in human health and, um, the, uh, you know, how we, how we survive in these challenging and and semi apocalyptic times. And, uh, and we have a lot of fun with it because, um, we, we talk about zombies and the zombie apocalypse. So, so that's, uh, in a nutshell, what, what I have going on right now and my future projects.
0: Well, speaking of which, I was going to mention that you are a fellow podcaster, but also the the dedication of the book to all of the beautiful monsters who came before us. So if you'd like to tell us briefly about the podcast... You're more than welcome to.
1: I would love to. Yeah. So um my podcast, Zombified, it's um is basically about all of the things that take over our brains and hijack us that that we might not realize. Um, so it's it's in a way about um kind of taking this idea of cheating, but um to an extreme where you have, you know, full on um hijacking and manipulation of systems. So everything from, you know, how you're your cute puppy is manipulating you. To how you know parasites can influence our brains. Um, to how social media takes over. You know the, the way that we think about things. So um, we have you know great guests. Um, we have authors, professors, artists, um, and it's a long form conversation where where we we explore these ideas um, and and have fun and and talk about zombies so so that's the that's the podcast in a nutshell that sounds
0: quite interesting and this has been a very interesting conversation uh, Athena Actiis thank you for being with us
1: It's been my pleasure thank you so much for having me
0: Thanks to you and to our listeners until next episode.